Mark, thanks for leading us so well uh, during that time. I really appreciate it. Um, uh, I don't know many people that are uh, as gifted as Mark Lindsay is and as willing to serve. You would be hard-pressed to find a place of our church that does not have his helpful fingerprints. So uh, thanks for your service, Mark. I really appreciate it. Uh, I'm Noah. I do a couple of things here at the church. Uh, if I haven't had a chance to meet you yet, I would love to meet you. We do have a time afterwards, uh, after the, the teaching, preaching time. Uh, you can come up and uh, ask questions and interact and talk. So if you ever have any questions or concerns or you know, want to talk about something after the sermon, we'd love to have you come and speak with us. Uh, that goes for anybody who occupies this space. So, so please, uh, when you have questions, ask them. Uh, I'm, I'm sure that I will, uh, you know, some questions will arise as I work through the passage this morning. So uh, I will leave some things behind, I'm sure. Uh, so please ask questions. Uh, who's excited about uh, preseason football? Anybody all ramped up about that? Okay, yeah. Anybody's team win yesterday or this past week? Yeah? Raise your hand if your team played and you were like all about it, right? Yeah, preseason, everybody's kind of like, eh, right? Like, I don't know who's going to play, you know, whatever. Uh, I'm, I'm not much of a football fan. I don't, I don't know football really well. And when I hear football people talk about like the defensive strategy and like the offensive strategy, I'm like, I have no clue what's going on. I just kind of like, you know, I know when something good happens. And, and another thing that I know about football is this, is that the quarterback, tell me if I'm right, tell me if I get this wrong. The quarterback passes the ball to the wide receiver. The wide receiver catches the ball. And then what is he supposed to do? He's supposed to run, right? That, am I right on that? I'm, I did that well? So he's got two jobs. He, he receives the ball and then he runs. Okay. So imagine if you had a wide receiver Quarterback passes them the ball, he catches the ball, and he doesn't run. What's going to happen? Well, quarterback's probably not going to pass him the ball very much, right? Uh, he, he might get fired. Uh, the cornerback is going to destroy him. Uh, and and the, the crowd is going to yell at him, like, run, catch the ball, and run. And so he has two jobs, receive the ball and run. And our passage this morning starts out with a similar idea. Look with me uh, at Colossians chapter 2, starting in verses 6 and 7. It says, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. And Paul is saying to his friends, many of them who he, he hasn't met yet, that the Christian life has two parts, receiving and walking. There's no option where you receive Christ and then don't walk in him. And so just like we would yell, run, at the wide receiver, Paul is yelling, walk, to his brothers and sisters. He's calling them to, to walk it out with Jesus, walk in him as they received him. And, and he frames this mobile notion of, of the Christian life, the walk, with three very immovable concepts. So he's saying walk, but then he, he kind of frames it with these immovable ideas of rooted, built up, and established. And each of these have the sense of stability or solidness, not easily moved or torn down. And so, so Paul is coupling the mobility and functionality of walking with the stability and immovability of things like trees or houses or cities. He's putting them together. And so we might summarize what he's saying like this. Let what you are taught of Christ and thankfulness stabilize and strengthen you as you walk out your faith in Jesus. That might be one way to say it. Or 
Be sturdy and grow up in Christ. Be strong in faith. Live out what you were taught, overflowing with thankfulness. And and Paul offers two stabilizing factors to help with the walking. He He says, that that is what you were taught and thanksgiving. Right? Those are two stabilizing factors of this walk. And so they're like crutches, if you'll allow me to use that language, for walking in the Christian life. Thankfulness on one side and the truth of Christ on the other. It gives stability in the walking out of the Christian life. And we're going to see these two Christ-focused crutches play out in our passage this morning as we go along. And so I want you to keep watch for Truths of Christ and things for which you should overflow with thankfulness. Keep, a, keep an eye out for those things. And I would challenge you, maybe even make like a tally sheet, make like a, a, a check mark. A check mark for every time some truth of Christ is presented, and a check mark for every time something for which you should be thankful is mentioned. Kids, you can help your parents out if they need, uh, help them stay engaged. So keep a list, follow along. Look with me in verse 8. He says, Paul's saying, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human traditions, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. So Paul moves from the the positive command to a more ominous challenge to not be taken captive. So he moves from that positive idea of walking to more of like a warning. He's saying, beware, take heed, look out. And and so like warning lights on the dashboard of your car, Paul is calling them to pay attention. Danger is about. And he lists a couple of snares that that others might use to captivate them. Philosophy and empty deceit. And then he denotes the source of these snares. He, He tells what the snares are, and then he tells them where do these come from. And he says they come from human traditions and the elemental spirits of the world. And so Paul is sketching out these snares so that that they're not taken off guard by them. And we might easily understand them in simple terms as worldly wisdom leading to man-made religion and demonic beings making promises they can't keep. It's kind of a simple way of understanding what he's talking about here. But either way, Paul says whatever this is, that it is in contradiction to Christ. It's contra Christ. And this this type of warning structure, it occurs over and over in this letter from Paul to the Colossian church. On four occasions, he warns them in a similar way. One we had last week, one we had this week, one we'll have next week, and then one the after. And he says this. So in 2.4, he says, he is writing so that no one deludes them with plausible arguments. In 2.8, he says, that no one should take them captive by uh, philosophy or empty deceit. And then in 2.16, he's going to insist that no one pass judgment on them by entertaining legalistic instructions. And then in 2.18, he's going to say, let no one disqualify them by insisting on self-centered self-denial and angel-centered worship. And so he's warning them in all these different areas He's saying, let no one do this, let no one do this, let no one do this. And he's warning them over and over again. And so Paul is guarding the church by warning them to watch out for those who would detract from Christ and his gospel through good-sounding arguments 
that are satanic in nature, supported by human tradition, encourage legalistic lifestyles that are rooted in abusive self-denial and control of others that results in the worship of something other than Christ. And you're like, okay, say that again. So yeah, I'll say that again. Paul is guarding the church by warning them to watch out for those who would detract from Christ, detract from his gospel with good-sounding, plausible arguments that are satanic in their nature, that are supported by human tradition, that encourage legalistic lifestyles, that are rooted in abusive self-denial and control of others that results in the worship of something other than Christ, sometimes even angels. This is what Paul is after. That's what he's warning them about. It's kind of a smoothie if you put all that stuff together, right? Trying to give you a summary of what is he talking towards. All of this is in contradiction to Christ. He is protecting them from the not according to Christ brand of Christianity. And there's a lot of them out there, back then and now. And he's saying, watch out for them. All the things that he is warning them about are against Christ. They're in opposition to Jesus. And they are in disaccord with the Messiah. And so in verse 9, Paul moves his hearers from uh, from understanding their potential captivity. So he's he's warned them about what could take them captive. And then in verse 9, he's going to move forward a little bit to understanding more of their position in Christ. And Paul believes that understanding their position in Christ will protect them. Watch how he does this. In verse 9, he says, For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. So why should you see to it that no one takes you captive with worldly, satanic philosophies that don't keep their promises? Paul's going to give three companion reasons for that. And they're laid out kind of like a sandwich. And I'm going to point out the bread first, and then I'll move and mention the meat. Um, this is not one of those sandwiches where the bread is like just a, like a carrier for this really good stuff inside. No. Think like, like prime rib on Texas toast. Like beef housed in like buttery, toasty bread. It's the whole thing, okay? The bread matters, all right? So slice one. If you look in verse 9, it says, For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And so what he's saying is that, that Jesus is God in the flesh. Whatever it means to be truly God, he is that. And whatever it means to be truly man, he is that. Fully and completely God, while at the same time fully and completely human. Not a silly myth or a man-made idea, but the collision, the true collision of heaven and earth in one true man. God finally revealing himself to his creation in no uncertain terms. The God-man Christ Jesus. And, And this reality shames any competing philosophy or human tradition. Every demonic scheme is embarrassed by the fact that Jesus of Nazareth is the creator of the universe. That's the point that he's making. So if you were to take Paul's first slice and put it into a question form, it would go like this. If Jesus is truly divine and truly human, why would we let fake gods and false humanity take us captive? Why would we do that? Let's look at slice two. 
Paul says Jesus is the head of all rule and authority. And simply put, if all the aspects of authority and rulership were shoved into one body, kings and queens, presidents and prime ministers, parents and principals, park and uh, police and park rangers, and, and then you add to that demons and drug lords, cartels and crips, Taliban and terrorists, if all of these made up a body that could be labeled rule and authority, Jesus is the head over that body. As the body has no power to act or move apart from the head, so the powers of this present world, physical and spiritual, are under the sovereign rule of Christ. There is no being that's outside of the rule of his rule and authority. He is king of kings. He is Lord of lords. He is the master of all. He occupies the throne. He holds the scepter. The crown rests on his brow. And again, if Paul's second slice were in a question form, it would go like this. If Jesus, the king of all, is our captain, how could we let anyone take us captive? How would we let that happen? So, are you ready for the meat? Ready for the prime rib? And, and here it is. Look at the beginning of verse 10. And he has filled you in him. Both of those things are true about him that we just mentioned. And then he has filled you in him. God in the flesh, the perfect human, the true Adam, true God, the man Christ Jesus who is the head of all, the rule of all authority. All comes under his sovereignty. He has filled you up. And the idea here is wholeness or completeness. That in Christ we are made whole. We are completed. And that completeness has to be reflective of his own fullness. That, that collision of, of godliness and humanity that we mentioned before. In him you are full of all that God desires and requires you to be. You received him. And now you are full to the brim. That's the idea here. Again, if we consider this point in question form, it would go like this. If Christ has completed you with himself, how could you let anyone take you captive? I know what you're thinking. But Noah, I don't feel full. In fact, some days I feel captive and empty. Well, you're in good company because evidently, the Colossians were struggling with the same thing. Or else, why would Paul write to them and say these things? They needed encouragement. They needed a reminder of who they are and whose they are. And you and I need the same weekly and daily and hourly sometimes. This is part of seeing to it that no one takes you captive. Is remembering who Jesus is and overflowing in thankfulness for what he has done. That's how we don't get taken captive. We're weak, and we need crutches. So the truth of Christ is this. Remember, crutch on one side. The truth of Christ is this. He is fully God, and he is fully man, and he is king of all. And if he is your king, he has filled you completely. That's a fact regardless of how you feel about it. And so I want to encourage you, really, 
in this moment, I want you to take a moment. I want you to think about that. If that is true, how should thankfulness bubble up in your heart? If I really believed that, what would a response of thankfulness be like? In what ways would I be thankful? If my king has filled me, if he has completed me, how can I be thankful? The Christian life is a paradox where the fullness of Christ collides with the weakness of our humanity. The now and not yet of Christ's completed work in us, this is a continual process that will only be finished when we fully enter his kingdom. This is why Paul is writing, to strengthen and guard a vulnerable church that is more than full in Christ. Both of those things are true. And if we don't hold to the reality that these are both true at the same time, our walk with Christ will be hindered. We are weak, but he is strong. That's a reality. That's where we live, and we have to hold these things together. A bit ago, I was describing to you a sandwich of buttery, toasty bread filled with thin, sliced prime rib and I forgot one thing that goes with that sandwich. What goes with that sandwich? Does anyone know? Someone said horseradish. That's a good idea. That's a great idea. I'd do that. So, yeah, maybe some horseradish. Au jus, right? Man. Anybody know what au jus is? What is au jus? What? It's, it's, like, a, it's like a broth, yeah, that when you're cooking this fantastic beef, you, know, you, take, you take all the drippings from that, you make like a dip of it. So you, you, you dip this sandwich back in the thing that it came from, right? And that's what Paul is going to do throughout the rest of the letter. Is he's going to kind of fill in this idea of what it means to be complete in Christ. He's, he's going to take this sandwich and just keep dipping it into these fantastic and beautiful doctrines of Christ and soaking this sandwich with all this delectable yumminess. And he's going to say over and over again, in him and with him, right? Just dunking this thing over and over again. And that's how he's going to move this passage forward. He's going to remind you of the irresistibility of the fantasticness of who Christ is and what he has done in us. That's where he's going to take us. He's going to tell us what it means that we are filled in Christ. Look at verse 11 with me. He says, in him also you are circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. And so Paul moves deeper into this idea. He adds to this idea of being filled or complete by highlighting something being removed or put off. And so while physical circumcision would remove physical flesh, Paul is telling us about a circumcision made without hands. So what is that? If you look at Deuteronomy 30, uh, Deuteronomy chapter, chapter 30 and verse 6, it says this, and the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. 
And so Moses looks forward to a time where God would do a circumcision that differed drastically from the surgical religious ceremony that came before. He would circumcise their hearts. And this would cause love and obedience to God. And it would lead to life. And this is surely what Paul has in mind when he says a circumcision made without hands. In addition, uh, in Paul's writing, the phrase put off consistently refers to ceasing or, or to cease to continue to live in opposition to Christ. It's a, it's a change of morality or a change of direction in how one lives. So if you, if you take that idea of putting off and then you add to it the fact that in Paul, uh, this word flesh is symbolic for the sinful nature of humanity, if you put all that together, uh, we could come to the conclusion that he is saying something like this. Jesus has cut away from your heart that which hindered you from being able to live in obedience to God. So now you can lovingly obey God from the heart. He has given you the renewed ability to walk in obedience. Paul is reminding them. He's reminding us that we have been freed from slavery to sin. That's how he says it in other books. We don't have to obey sin anymore. We have another option. We can obey Christ. Sin is not our master. Jesus is. Look how he continues in verse 12. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And so those in Christ, he says, have been filled, they have been freed. Now, he tells us, we have been buried in baptism with Christ. And once more, Paul points to an outward symbol to make a spiritual point. And so one of the major reasons uh, I'm happy to be a Baptist, there's lots of reasons to not be happy about being a Baptist these days, uh, and that's a, that's a reality that we have to struggle with. But, but one of the reasons I'm happy to be a Baptist is this right here. Is that I believe that water baptism is one of the clearest images of the gospel we could have. And every time a believer, one who's received Christ, is baptized, we get to rehearse the gospel. We see the truth of the gospel acted out. Where one public, but publicly confesses that they were dead in sin. They were crucified with Christ. They were buried with him as they go under the water and were raised with him as they come up out of the water to walk in new life with him. Our water baptism is a physical reenactment of a spiritual reality accomplished by God and a public commitment to walk forward with Christ. It's a public confession of our faith in the powerful working of God. We are saying I was dead and buried with Christ and raised with him. I am alive in him, is what we're saying in our baptism. And Paul is reminding them of that. He adds to that verse 13. He says, and you were dead in your trespasses, in the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. And so Paul takes what was said in verses 11 and 12 and ties them together. But this time, he highlights them from a, a different perspective, almost to say, don't forget where Jesus found you. He's reminding them where they've come from. 
That they were dead in their sin and, and unable to lovingly obey God. In their actions, they were against Christ. And in their position, they were against God. They were dead, is what he was saying. I won't forget where Jesus found me. Uh, I've made a decision to, to never forget where Jesus found me. I was walking around dead trying to take people with me. I was an evangelist for personal pleasure. An evangelist for selfishness. And I was trying to get whatever I could from whoever would let me take it from them. That was my life. And I wanted to take people with me. And then Jesus started digging. Shovel by shovel by shovel until I came to life. So let me ask you, where were you when Jesus found you? I want you to take a moment and, and think back to the moment where you were when Jesus found you. Do you remember how dead you were? Do you remember that you were dead? Not mostly dead, but all the way dead, fully dead, really dead. Dead in your actions and your positions before God. And that goes for every single person here, regardless of who or where you were when you came to Christ. Whether you were five or 50, you were dead. You brought nothing but your own dead corpse into the Christian life. That's a fact. And the moment you forget that reality is the moment your faith gets transferred to lesser things. We did not help Jesus in our salvation. He did it all. We showed up dead. He brought us to life. Verse 12 says that we were raised through faith in the powerful working of God. That's where our faith lives, in the powerful working of God that brings us to life. That's where our faith lives. And Paul wants to remind his friends exactly where they were before Christ found them. And he wants them to know exactly how he went about providing them their current spiritual security. It was not through any human tradition, not through keeping laws and rituals, not through worldly philosophical principles, not through angels. No. He did it through the mercy-filled forgiveness of God in Christ. And how did he do that? Look at verse 14 with me. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. So how is it that, that God, how is it that God, who is just, can forgive transgressions against a way of living that he prescribes? How does he do that? And this is a question you have to ask yourself. When laws are broken against, against God, his laws for living well, we know that there are legal repercussions. He says so much here. And we're told throughout the scriptures that the legal demand for sin is spiritual death and results in physical death and eternal death. And that is what is demanded legally in God's kingdom. That's the law. That's how it is. So for him to forgive these infractions means that the legal demands would not be upheld. So how is it that God can forgive? 
This should cause a bit of a problem for us. Imagine with me that that we are in a court of law and I'm the judge and you're the jury and Daniel is on trial. Sorry, Daniel. He was witness committing the murder. He was found in possession of the murder weapon. He confessed to the murder. He knows he did it. I, the judge, knows he did it. You, the jury, knows that he did it. You deliberate for about three minutes. You bring back a unanimous guilty verdict. And then it's my turn to pronounce judgment on Daniel for his crime, to which I pronounce that Daniel has to serve no time in prison, no probation, no community service, not even a fine. I tell him his debt has been totally canceled and he can go free. So how do you as the jury feel about that? Is that just? No, it's not just. It's merciful, but it's not just. So how does the district attorney feel about that? Not too good. Furthermore, how does the family feel about that? They feel like a miscarriage of justice has happened. Because it's merciful, but it's not just. The legal demands and penalty of that crime are not upheld. So how is it that God, who is completely just, the just one, how can he cancel a debt with legal demands? How does he just cancel it? Look at the second half of the verse. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. God did something substantial to deal with the debt that stood against us. He set it aside. And at first that sounds like he just shelved our debt. But if we keep reading, it becomes clear that he did not shelve our debt. He nailed it. He nailed it to the cross of Christ. In Christ, that debt was nailed. In Christ, all of your sin, every ill thought, every muttered insult, every personal slight, every greedy glance, every little lie, every yelled word, reflect on your week, every shameful act, every hateful intention, every neglected resolve, every purposeful click, every fudged tax form, every inflated self-presentation, every distrustful action aimed at God, every transgression, passive or active, it has been nailed to the cross in Christ. It has been taken away and erased through the blood of Christ. That's what Paul is saying. That's how God can be merciful because his merciful act is rooted in the just work of Jesus. He paid the penalty. Jesus loves you so deeply that he said, I'll take it, I'll take it all, nail it to me, I'll pay it off. And that's exactly what he did. He received the good and right legally demanded penalty for each of your sins. And he drank the cup of God's anger so that you could drink from the cup of God's mercy. That's what he did. That's how it works. And so our passage, it started with a jail cell where Paul is warning us not to be taken captive. And his antidote to that jail cell is a vault 
filled with the treasure of Christ. A vault filled up with all that Christ has accomplished for us. Things like this. Christ filled you with the fullness of himself. Christ removed your inability to obey him. Christ made you alive with him. Christ raised you from the grave to new life. Christ took your death sentence on himself. That is the vault. That is the treasure of Christ. And when we look into it, being being taken captive isn't so easy. We don't want it. We're not easily fooled. We don't want that jail cell. How can our hearts not overflow with gratitude and thankfulness for what Christ has done? Like, like when you think about these truths, don't they make you want to walk in Jesus? Don't you like want to get up and go? He has done everything that can be done to save us, to free us, and to fill us for this life. And now, the call is to walk in him anew. I'm going to send you with some homework uh, this week. Kind of like an experiment, a holy experiment, if you will. I want to encourage you to take one of these truths of Christ that we've mentioned this morning, and I want you to spend about 15 minutes uh, tomorrow morning thinking about that truth. And I want you to write down a couple of reasons why you are thankful for it. Take about 15 minutes to do that. Think about the truth, reflect on it a little bit, write down a couple of things of thankfulness in response to that truth. And I want you to do that every day this week. You can kind of work your way through this kind of list of truths that we talked about. Do that every day this week. Move from one aspect to the next. If you like, you can hang out with just one of them if you like. And then next Sunday, I want you to ask yourself, how has my walk in Christ, how has my love and obedience to Christ grown over the last seven days? I want to press you, I want to challenge you, I want to encourage you to do that experiment. And prove me wrong. Do that, reflect on the truths of Christ, and then be thankful for those truths. And I'll give you a dollar if you come back next week and you say, I was not encouraged in my walk with Jesus. Literally, I will reach in my pocket and give you, a, give you a dollar if you do it every day and you're not encouraged and built up in your walk with Jesus. Can you do that? Is that something you can do? Uh, will you take a second and just kind of jot that down somewhere or text yourself or schedule something on your phone and think about what time am I going to do this? What time of day am I going to do that? Where am I going to sit to do that? How am I going to keep my children from invading my space? Take a second and make a plan. So before we finish this morning, uh, Paul has another gold brick that he wants to toss over in the vault. As he's kind of building this thing, stacking it full of the treasures of Christ, he's got another one to toss in there as we leave. And as we look at verse 15, I want to call to mind your remembrance of that great cinematic accomplishment of 1987, The Princess Bride. A story which many of you think fondly upon in which the hero of the story, Wesley, he's facing off with the zealous swordsman Inigo Montoya. And as the two battle vigorously back and forth, Inigo makes a revelation to Wesley. He says, there is something you do not know. What does he say? I am not left-handed. And Inigo, he flips the sword over to his right hand. Or sorry, he flips it over to his right hand. 
And they begin to battle, and uh, Inigo is dominating Wesley at this point, to which Wesley then responds with his own revelation. There's something I ought to tell you. I am not left-handed either. And he flips his sword over to his right hand. And in a couple of moves, he pops the sword out of Inigo's hand, and it falls to the ground. And in a couple of more moves, he totally dominates him putting him to shame, leaving him defeated and powerless. And I want you to have that in your mind as we look at verse 15. It says this. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Christ. And so Jesus, by his work on the cross, he has stripped Satan and his minions of their primary weapon against us. What is that weapon, you might say? What is that primary weapon? The accusation of our guilt. That's what he has stripped from them. Our debt has been canceled. Our guilt turned to innocence in Christ. He has nothing to say to us. And so though he may try, Satan no longer has the ability to shame those who are in Christ. Rather, he is put to shame publicly because Jesus was raised and we are raised with him. And this is the victory song that we sing in the face of satanic accusation of our guilt. Satan's going to accuse you. He's going to say, I cannot believe that you think you can show up here on Sunday mornings and sing those songs. Look at you. Good try. You are disqualified from that, he'll say. But what does the gospel say? No. Jesus Jesus has done something. He has taken the weapon from their hands and turned it against them so that every time we approach this table, we are speaking truth to power. We are speaking the truth of Christ to disarmed powers of this world. And when we come to this table, we proclaim Jesus and his worth until he comes in his glory. That's a fact. And so I want to encourage you, as you prepare yourself to come to this table, don't comfort yourself with how good you were this week. Don't comfort yourself with your wins. Reflect on the depth of your own sinfulness this week and know that Jesus paid it all, that you can come to this table without guilt. You can come confidently, not because of what you've done, but because of what Christ has done, because you are complete and full in him. Let us pray to that end. Father, our heart overflows with thankfulness, and we ask that you would guard us as we come to this table that the gospel would go forth and that no self-comfort, no self-justification would proceed. But Lord, only because of what you have done would we boldly and confidently come to you to walk in the forgiveness that you secured for us in Christ. May this table be a place of great joy and hope only because of what Jesus has done and his work on the cross. And Lord, we do proclaim that you are worthy, and we anticipate your coming to set all things right as we take this meal. And we pray it in the name of Christ. Amen.